0: Ready graphics, ready theme, two, one. Good evening. For your information tonight. Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the
1: Murphy Brown Podcast. My pearls were clutched. Society is just a giant reboot. I would wear this outfit every day. I missed this episode completely because if I had seen it, I would have freaked the f*** out. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 16, I Want My FYI. Hello, everyone. Hello, it's Lauren. It's Jessie. And we are back with another episode of FYI, which is kind of a bit of a pun on the title of this episode. (laughs) Because I love puns, even though most people do not like them. I will push them on society for the rest of my life.
0: You know what? It's a total hipster thing to say you don't like puns. Everybody likes a pun. Half people don't know what a pun is when they say they don't like them. They don't like people who try to be like, I'm a punny guy. Like, they don't like that personality, but everyone likes a pun. Thank you. There are so many types of puns.
1: Yes. Even though that was a sort of on the borderline of pun world, but you know, Mm -hmm. I found it punny.
0: Ha! Ha! Oh, this episode. (laughs) This is, this is for us, this episode.
1: (laughs) Seriously. When they say they weren't writing for 12 year old girls, they did not mention this particular episode.
0: This, this was it. This was it. Yes. Now this is
1: directed by Barnett
0: Kelman someone you it's, may have heard of. Yes, you may also have heard of a couple young fellas who wrote it named Norm Gunzenhauser and Tom Seely.
1: Now, what I was about to say, but I wanted to reference first that this episode aired January 29th, 1990, which for my personal history means I missed this episode completely because if I had seen it, I would have freaked the <laughs> out. Yes, I will go cut that <laughs> later. Would have freaked out. If I had seen this episode, I did not see it until I was probably like 16. Mm-hmm. I am, I guess, like a year and a couple months younger than and Bialik, so she's pretty much my age.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The reason I didn't see this, my guess is, is that January 29th, 1990 was the Monday before my bat mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> oh... Oh, I was really busy studying for my (laughs) Haftora. And in fact, the next episode we're doing is literally my 13th birthday.
0: Dang.
1: So I had family in town uh, and I was studying. I'm going to
0: say, I think there's something about the universe coming together to have this particular episode with Mayim Bialik at that same time in your life. It feels like a convergence.
1: But I should comment, if people don't remember, when we had Norm on the show, he mentioned that Mayim was a recast. Mm-hmm. Which, when we get to her, I'm going to talk about why I think that that illuminates this episode for me in a whole different way. But just to show what a true professional Mayam is and was is the fact that uh, she came in on a Wednesday. And as we've talked about the way that the show works, I mean, that's even less time than anyone would have on the show, let alone a child actor, to be mm-hmm. able to come in and do such great work on the show in half a week. Yeah, I mean, she amazing. runs
0: those lines with that banter and patter style that like adult guest stars have not been able to pull off. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's true. It is uncanny the way she walks in as a Minnie Murphy which we will talk about.
1: Uh, the music ABC by the Jackson Five, obviously. You may have
0: heard of this song. You may already be singing it to yourself as we talk about it.
1: Yes. Now, we like to talk about something, you know, a little different sometimes, something you may not know. So I would love to talk about something called The Corporation, hmm. which for years was listed as the writers of this particular song, ABC, and many of the songs of. The Jackson Five.
0: Hey, we've heard
1: of them. We have. So the corporation was a collective of songwriters and record producers that came together in 1969, headed by Barry Gordy, obviously. And they
0: also fight crime. Oh, my
1: God. That sounds like the best graphic novel.
0: Right? Sorry, (gasps) Barry Gordy.
1: I love this. Okay. So the four members of the corporation were Barry Gordy, Freddie Perrin, and I hope I say this right, uh, Deke, or DK Richards, and Alfonso Mizell. I hope I say this correctly. They were responsible for the writing, production, and arranging of five number one hits, like I said, including ABC, including I Want You Back. The corporation was intended as a replacement for Jesse. I think you know what I'm going to say. Holland Dozier Holland? Yes! Yes! Who had left the label in 1967 to start Invictus Records and Hot Wax Records. And in fact, something that I'll probably go into the future, were embroiled in a bit of a legal battle.
0: (gasps) Oh, spicy. It's
1: very spicy. So Gordy created the corporation as a way to not have superstar writers like they had had with Jesse. Holland, Dozer Holland. Thank you. So the group was never billed individually. The corporation disbanded in 1972 after Hal Davis took over complete creative control of all of the Jackson 5's output. But later, their names were reinstated as the writers of the Jackson 5 material and not necessarily now billed as the corporation, which may be why you have never heard of them because I had not. Yep. One of the main... Or, I should say, one of the stories I've heard the most Gordy asked what he intended to call the group. And Richards looked at Gordy's desk and saw stationery marked Motown Record Corporation and said, huh. How about the corporation? And he said, Okay, that sounds good.
0: <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> it is,
1: yeah. But the thing that really got me about the story, I feel, is the fact that he purposely wanted to do this so that he didn't make superstar songwriters.
0: Yeah, yeah. that,
1: yeah, that tracks. Shall we go into it? Oh, can we please? So the opening is quite interesting. One for me, because these people are so obviously my age at that time. <laughs> the way they look, the clothes, like I also had my Bialik's haircut. I, I feel quite smart in comparison to these, these kids. And now this was a time in the 90s when civics were still in the classroom, as far as I know. Oh, yeah. They don't know who Richard Nixon is. They don't know what language people speak in Rome. I believe someone offers the option of Jewish. Yes. They don't know who Fidel Castro is. Well, well, I guess he was still alive at the time. Who Martin Luther King was. (sighs) And then, of course, which is perfect Murphy Brown, it ends with who is Dan Quayle.
0: Ding. Truly, before we had, like, Jimmy Kimmel doing his segments on the sidewalk interviewing people, before we had the internet, we had Murphy Brown both doing this type of segment And trolling. Now, this type of segment in like a late night situation is commonplace. Yeah. Like this was the precursor thing. I know that things like this had probably been done before in pop culture. But like seeing this is just the the ahead of what now is commonplace blows my mind watching this. But like no one gets any of the answers right. I have to wonder how many people they interviewed. Like I want to know just for the belief in our generation (laughs) that like please say that either some of these were you know willing to be in on the joke or they it took them a hundred interviews before they got these five or seven.
1: well, listen, you know I <laughs> a lot of what I knew about politics was from pop culture. I have to say, mm-hmm. like shows like Murphy Brown. so you know we were both watching more adult shows, yeah, but still, not knowing who the President of the United States was like i I knew that when I was twelve. To I'm going to tell you,
0: like, not, no know- I mean, I can understand not knowing what languages they speak elsewhere, because like, what language do they speak in Rome, then the kid would have to know enough geography to know where Rome is, which, you know, like people get confused by capitals and so on. Some people might think Rome is separate from Italy, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Richard Nixon is not, you know, current to a child. So, okay, fine. It's the the one that really got me was he freed the slaves that one really got me. <laughs> oh,
1: Mar- yeah, that was for Martin Luther King.
0: Yeah, Martin Luther King being known for freeing the slaves really, really hurt me in a timeline in U.S. history place.
1: I realized when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, mm-hmm. um, I should be ashamed to admit this, but it's funny. I thought that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, when I was probably 11 or so, I think that's when she, I'm trying to think when she was, what was that, Nine oh ninety two. 92. Yeah. I guess I was Oh, God. <laughs> I assumed that she must be married to Allen Ginsberg. Bless. Because it was the only other Ginsberg that I had heard of. And mm-hmm. I made that connection in my head. Mm-hmm. But I vaguely knew who Allen Ginsberg was, so that's kind of points.
0: <laughs> if it helps you, I just discovered that Danny Elfman and Jenna Elfman are actually related through marriage. She's married to his brother. That is such a such a tangent to this conversation. But I want you to know... That after you said that, I just looked at my very stern RBG action figure next to my desk, and she is raising her hand in the air to dissent.
1: (laughs) Well, particularly because I don't want to bring anything against Marty.
0: God, she's the best
1: husband in the world. Marty! Now that I
0: know. we, We stand for Marty. We stand for Marty.
1: So this goes into Phil's, where... Murphy is wearing a quintessential Murphy outfit. Sorry, I have to talk about the outfit, but I got love it. purple. The purple in the tweed looks really great. She's got mm-hmm. purple scarf, purple shirt, tweed jacket. And okay. Phil is in the middle of telling the gang a joke, a very elaborate joke that apparently has been going on for 10 minutes, which is a really long joke. Um, it involves George Bush, Gorbachev, and damn rather. Also, this is the first time in a long time that I notice what is on Phil's suspenders. Yes, I was gonna say the same thing. Little monkeys, right? Yes. So, Miles comes in, he has really, really super big news that he wants to tell everybody, but they want to finish the end of the joke, and as Phil's about to get to the punchline, Miles goes, oh, isn't this the Nancy Reagan joke? like an ass <laughs> and ruins the joke that they've all been waiting for 10 minutes for. And I generally do believe that he did not do that on purpose. It's oh, an idiotic no. thing. He was just
0: excited to like join the conversation.
1: His good news is that he is going to produce another magazine show. Except uh, he doesn't get to say it. No, he doesn't get to really finish it because Phil says it for him, which is really quite beautiful. The payback. It's so good the audience applauds Phil's revenge. <laughs> I love Phil's revenge. Miles literally says to him, was that necessary? And Phil responds, I hate myself. (laughs) And this is like (laughs) the best like deadpan. It's like such a great sort of comic moment. Mm -hmm. Frank is obviously concerned for a rival uh, show. It's a Saturday afternoon kids version of FYI. By kids, for kids. Which sounds so familiar, and I tried to find an equivalent at the time, and I swear there was something on CBS, but I cannot find it. Right?
0: I was trying to think about because I, I know I grew up with that yeah. type of content. Yeah, because Nick and News
1: that... was later, but Nick News was definitely yeah. more like, we're going to treat you like adults.
0: Yeah, I mean, even like Lisa Ling treated us like adults.
1: Oh, oh I don't rem- talked. You've talked about her show. I didn't watch mm-hmm. her show. I didn't know her till The View.
0: I watched it at school. So, oh, interesting. And I definitely seen things before that. I don't know if I'm just thinking about like those segments from all of that or what I'm thinking of. But I've yes, I similarly have that memory.
1: Yeah. Not to mention the set, which I, I will go into when we get there, oh, is yeah. very remnants of a lot of kids shows at the time.
0: Oh, it is my like 90s fever dream. It makes me so happy. Um, also, I just need to comment that, you know, y'all, we've been, you know, we're in a global pandemic and... While we have been, you know, recording as uh, as we can during this time, it you know, it's felt more and more lonely in the world. And I don't know why it felt like I hadn't seen Jim's face in a long time., Aww. But when I tell you, seeing Charlie Kimbrough's face made me emotional, I started tearing up. I love that man so much. Oh, Jesse. I don't know why this particular segment did that to me, but when Jim tells a joke in the segment and it giggles at himself, I just wrote in all caps I would give my life for Jim like I just love that man so much and for some reason seeing him was just like it's just like seeing a papa figure I don't know I love him so much that sounds like this quarantine has made me so soft
1: they all pretty much mock miles that he is a child looks like a child has clothes like a child and therefore is perfect In fact, it goes to show how we're into season two and the audience knows the character because as soon as Murphy says, oh, that sounds perfect for you, so to speak, before even getting to the joke, the audience starts to laugh. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. They know where she's going to go. So uh, really what Miles needs from them is, well, first of all, he feels that, you know, they're mocking him for wanting to raise the intelligence of kids of this nation, which is important business. But he has to be nice to them because he would like them to mentor the kids, to which uh, Murphy quotes George Bush by saying, read my lips, and then goes, ha! Which will be a callback to later. It's very Murphy, but it also sounds a little bit like Pee-wee, which she's going to do a little bit later, which I find Mm. hilarious. Oh, I wrote down, uh, Jim's joke was uh, the next thing would be Miss Piggy at the Berlin Wall.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That one made me really happy.
1: Yeah. But Corky is the first person to actually, which I love, she's always often the first person to agree, which then makes Miles go, oh no, Corky said, yes, that's... No one else. <laughs> no, no, no one. What I love is that Corky, of course, is going to go into the whole idea that Murphy is old, which is one of my favorite jokes because, of course, Candace Bergen does not look old. And also Candace always gives these great sort of takes towards the audience. Mm-hmm. Corky knows how important it was starting out. You know, I need guidance from someone old and I had Murphy. <laughs> so Jim's reason, which threw me a little bit, was the youth need something more than poorly drawn cartoons that litter the airwaves
0: the cartoons got better i here's the deal i would argue that uh the word poor is not necessarily uh the way that we on the latter end of the evolution of 2d animation would define it Mm. like you can prefer what it was when you were a kid and think the new version of it
1: that's true while
0: shinier and you know has has evolved into a different thing is less than like i i'm even thinking about when uh when we had our last hand-drawn Disney movie
1: oh good and then everything
0: went into like more of the Pixar style CGI like I miss hand-drawn animation like just true hand-drawn animation and even though like the the advancements in the innovation of of animation are wonderful and have made these some of my favorite things to come out in the last several years there is something about the nostalgia about being like I don't know I prefer when it was simpler so like I think for him like, I'm thinking about how Jim would have felt about Ren and Stimpy. Oh, yeah. You know, like, the animation is quote-unquote better, but it's also crude, and maybe he doesn't like those particular colors or the styling of the characters.
1: I should have looked up when Beavis and Butthead started because Jim would have hated Beavis and Butthead.
0: Exactly like things were changing we were we were moving into the 1990s which was full of just kind of like in your face color and style even though of course the 80s had its own but I'm thinking about particularly like kids entertainment of like Nickelodeon.
1: Think about early Simpsons that was also pretty uh, Uh crudely drawn. think about early Simpsons that was also pretty uh, crudely drawn. so everyone's on board but Murphy because she has a real job to do she has an interview with Mario Cuomo. Papa Cuomo and that's the thing why this show is so relevant there's so many things from the 90s that are like come up today society is just a giant reboot uh-huh <laughs> murphy leaves she wishes them all luck at peewee silverbrook's playhouse and then literally does ha like a, i can't even do it like this great impression of peewee herman it is quite spot on Yeah. And to give people some reference, Pee Wee's Playhouse was on CBS from 1986 to about 1991, although the later half was more reruns, but it still was on the air because I
0: I was like, I feel like it was on longer. It was
1: because it was reruns.
0: I felt like Pee Wee was just there my entire childhood, which technically based on when I was born in the 80s. Actually, pretty much was. But I felt like he was there just a lot longer than the section of years. And it's just because of reruns, syndication, and the movies. So then we find ourselves... Yeah, I was like, I assume this is the next day and it's already rolling. Are you guys free tomorrow to do all this extra work that I didn't ask you to do until now? Right, and you have your own show. Um, So we are in the bullpen. Uh, But we start by looking at Murphy's office and she's entering into the bullpen past. Now we have to say this is we're naming her honorary secretary number 27 solely because first and foremost in a true travesty of not honoring a legacy of characters this secretary is not credited she's credited as an extra. Well I should say we're guessing she is because she's not credited which is a true travesty because of the legacy of secretaries. We have down that she is sweater stuck in drawer lady.
1: Yes, we both wrote Um, that separately from each other.
0: Separately. (laughs) Bless her heart. We only see her for this moment. As Murphy is walking into the bullpen, she is struggling with the end of her pink cardigan, which is stuck into the drawer. What I love is just the length of time we watch this woman struggle with a sleeve without even trying to like open the drawer with her other hand. She's just pulling desperately. She could easily have been in any scene in planes, trains, and automobiles. We barely see her face. We just see everything is focused on the tragedy that is her hand trying to pull her sweater sleeve out of a drawer. Murphy has no energy for this one, rolls her eyes, and just walks toward the coffee. Speaking of Murphy, Murphy is wearing a white, oversized blouse that is tucked in. It's not billowy, it's oversized the cuffs of the sleeves unbuttoned and rolled up once. So it's almost like a popped collar on her wrists. She's got brown pumps and a belt and an orange statement necklace that's on the outside of her, her tall collar. I live for these fashion choices. I it's, would wear this outfit every day.
1: It's pretty great.
0: It's so good. She just, oh, she's so great. Anyway, rolls her eyes, walks toward the coffee, where we find Miles. Miles is doing laps, apparently. His pacing has turned into doing laps around the table that is in the forefront of Frank, Corky and Jim running through the itinerary for the young reporters that are currently in a photo session. Oh, wait a second. It can't be the next day. They, 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 they had to have casting. Well, I assume that honestly, he's coming to them after everything's been cast. I get the impression that everyone's finding out after all of the things have already happened. Okay, I can buy that. The uh, young reporters are currently in a photo session. They will then have informal chatting until noon, lunch from noon to one, story from one to three, and then visit the set at 3.15. Murphy's standing back by the coffee, observing this. Let us remember, she's not a part of this. The elevator dings. Miles, I love Miles with children energy. (laughs) It's like, it's that person... I get the impression of a couple things. One, Miles is trying to be, you know, big producer man, as he always is. But Mm -hmm. also this idea of when you're the youngest person and there are finally younger people around you, (laughs) suddenly you want to make sure everyone sees that there's a difference. And so you start talking to the younger people as so much younger. They're so so much younger. They're so, but like. I mean,
1: now they would date, but, you know, the age difference at that time was just a little bit different.
0: (laughs) I will also argue, though, that while I know we're using the term kids because they are minors, based on the way they were talking thought these were going to be like 8 to 12 year olds.
1: Oh, interesting. these are like
0: these are preteens and teens.
1: Yeah, I get a little offended when they sometimes they're spoken to like like 8 year olds, which I wrote several yeah. times in this. I was like, you should speak to them like actual adults.
0: Like they they clearly are a range from maybe at the youngest 12 or 13 up to teenagers. Like they are teens.
1: Yeah, I feel like, as I will call him this entire time, Zach Morris, because I cannot call him anything else. Mm -hmm. I think he might be old. He feels older than them, but also because he's taller than
0: them. I also get the impression that, yeah, like the oldest one is the anchor, which fits, you know, the archetypes that they're clearly filling in each person as. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The tallest, oldest one is the anchor and male, of course. So Miles immediately and it just is clearly in all caps is like, hey, look who's here. My kids, my stars of tomorrow. Minus one. Where's Natalie? And so we see that there are three children there. We have a young blonde in a, I would say, an understated dress with her arms crossed, which I personally believe was like a visual bait and switch to the audience. Oh, Um, interesting. Yep. Then we have a brunette boy, very serious in a suit. And then we have Zach Morris, a.k.a. Mark Paul Gosselaar, who is tall in a vibrant letter jacket style jacket and very blonde hair who's looking very chill. These are teens, not kids. The young girl we find out later, her name is Tracy, uh, says that Natalie, the missing child, has missed the elevator and immediately turns to an adult behind him and asks them to call security. Like, Miles is doing his Miles thing of telling everyone everything is fine while clearly having a full breakdown.
1: And also assuming that, like, she can't figure out where she really needs to go because she's
0: 13. As a latchkey kid, I am offended. (laughs) that people think that I wouldn't have been able to find my way to an elevator. This is FYI Jr. He walks them over to the table, introduces them. And the first one we meet is Tracy Knight, who until this moment has been standing with her arms crossed in a fairly like, it's a like, is it plaid? I was trying to tell in my resolution. It's just kind of a dark blue green... Dress. It's pretty yes. understated. Yeah. It's pretty like adult. It just seems like yeah. a kind of an adult outfit for a child that age. Yeah. Nicely styled blonde hair. But she also has not been, you know, looking very bubbly or anything like that. So I was like, oh, we're supposed to believe that this was the one that was supposed to be with Murphy. I want to know who they cast. Like, who did they cast to look like Candace Bergen? Clearly, this was just this was just a choice in this particular styling and mannerism until this moment. Like, she was always going to be Corky's girl. Mm-hmm. He introduces Tracy and says that she will be with Corky. And in a true testament to Faith Ford, it is so clear that she made sure to bond with this kid and to find this moment with this child actor. They both take in the same huge breath and a gasp and scream on the same high whistle tone note while hugging. Like these two, I swear it was like something out of a fairy tale when these two saw each other. It was un. Believable, the way that tracy and corky reacted to each other and it's so clear that they took the time to figure that out and tracy cries out like she can't believe she's meeting her the most important woman in journalism today and you're just kind of watching like murphy's side eye in the background and corky tells her she has so much she wants to teach her about finding a good story writing a good lead have you ever worn your hair pulled back oh it's beautiful it's it's wonderful. I say they are truly adorable. And you can just tell, especially with us having you know met Faith, you just know this part of the success of this came out of Faith's ability to connect with a new actor. Like yes. their connection is so precious. Jim, the consummate gentleman, stands up and strides forward, uh, clearly assuming that the suit mini Jim, the erudite young man, must be the anchor. Uh, the serious kid introduces himself as Henry Caldwell. He is actually the investigative reporter. To which Frank in the background starts very awkwardly chuckling and going no kidding. And Jim does the best line where you can just I'm sure it wasn't written this way and this is just Charlie Kimbrough but starts speaking in a way where you hear every ellipses as he's Mm, speaking. Yeah. So then as he makes his way toward our own Zach Morris by simple process of elimination as it were this fellow right over here the only one left must be the anchor. (laughs) <laughs> and at this point, Mark Paul Gosselaar is sitting there flipping through a magazine, like sitting on a desk, very cash, very frank. And he stands up. And he's like, you got that right. West Jordan. How's it hanging, Jim? And the way he says the how's it hanging <laughs> does a slight parody of Jim where he just like drops his voice in such a way. First and foremost, he has on this letter jacket style. It's not a members only jacket. It's a letter jacket. Yeah, style.
1: it looks like a letterman jacket. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's got like yellow and this like almost animal print lapel it's crazy. But he has this relaxed kind of cocksure attitude and floppy California boy hair. So we need to take a moment to talk about this particular look that is Mark Paul Gosselaar in the 90s.
1: Yes, because it became a co- iconic
0: after this. Oh, yeah. But Lauren, you brought up something about this iconic hair.
1: Yes. So I didn't know until I was an adult that Mark Paul Gosselaar is not a blonde. So he had been asked to dye his hair blonde for what eventually became Saved by the Bell, because obviously that's very sort of Zack character. Although originally it was a show called Good Morning, Miss Bliss, which was an NBC show that became a Disney Channel show. It was the first time ever that a network actually sort of co-produced with a cable station. So... This was airing on the Disney Channel at the time that this also aired. So he still had the hair. I don't know if he was still filming uh, Good Morning, Miss Bliss, which by the way started Haley Mills. Yeah. Which is why it surprised me that it was not originally a Disney Channel property because I figured they had just like built this around her. She is so Disney. (laughs) So I was like, oh, this is so interesting. It was a failed pilot for NBC that they sold at Disney. And then um, a lot of those characters somehow moved to California and <laughs> went to school at Bayside instead. The dawn on me when I realized now that I look back at this, I go, well, wait, why is he blonde already if he's not an actual blonde? And this is why I think I was so shocked to find that out because I had seen him in another work and he was blonde.
0: So we're... We're not going to launch into uh, Mark Paul Gosler.
1: Yeah, we figure you You'll know who recognize he is. Who this is. We figure yeah. you know
0: who he is. A couple things to keep in mind about him. He is obviously Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. His first name is actually Mark Paul. People think that it's, you know, first name, middle name, stage name. It is Mark hyphen Paul, which is something I've always really enjoyed. His middle name is Harry. But yes, he is Saved by the Bell. He is Zach Morris. He was also in -in Commander-in-Chief. He was also in NYPD Blue. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's been in a ton of things. Kudos to him. He's allowed himself to age, which I really appreciate. And he's allowed himself to have his own natural hair. Now that I know him with like a beard and some things, the (laughs) idea of him being that blonde with that dark beard is terrifying
1: uh speaking of shows from the 90s the they have brought back "Say by the Bell for the sure Peacock have. Network uh streaming currently
0: mm-hmm. we highly recommend because there's a lot of little easter eggs for you from the cast
1: yeah if you're a fan of the old "Say by the Bell you will appreciate it and it's definitely updated and I think they did a re I was surprised I think they did a really great job
0: and they actually comment on some of the things that may be uh pr- issues you may have now watching the original yes is all will say So, yes, it is Mark Paul Gosselaar being Mark Paul (laughs) Gosselaar. Like, there's really, he was cast for a very specific reason in this role. As he stood up, I wrote that this feels like a really cruel, almost uh, high school reversal of fortunes in Jim's pursed face. Because I feel like there's something about the idea that, you know, Jim was very much the serious kid, clearly. Mm -hmm. The idea that now the, like, cocksure... Lackadaisical guy is now taking his job of in the future seems so unfair. (laughs) There's something about like no, no, men who are anchors are serious and put together, and not the not the Frank Fontanas. Like they do that, and we do this. And the idea that that type of person would be the anchor for the next generation clearly bothers Jim. (laughs) Uh, This will pay off as the episode continues. His name is Wes. I shall call him Wes as much as I remember sees that jim's a little hesitant and goes oh you're not sure about the earring which honestly we haven't seen the earring on his ear much yet because that's been upstage for the majority of this section so mm-hmm. i didn't even realize it was actually there uh, he goes yeah miles warned me he does this like tap onto miles's like obliques with the back of his hand, like they're buds which clearly i just feel like my assumption of miles is he's like we're, we're not equals here <laughs> that's cool just because i don't fit the mold doesn't mean i can't report the news mm-hmm. which kudos And Jim kind of goes, of course not. I guess I'm just a traditionalist. Last of a dying breed. An old dinosaur gasping for air as it crashes to the ground and dies. But I'm fine with it. And just walks away and sits down. This is really a theme for Jim this season. (laughs) Jim's feeling feeling more than many episodes in which he has had this existential crisis. He's really feeling his his sunset years coming. Mm -hmm. I also appreciate... Our dear Frank behind them, holding in laughter behind Jim as he goes through this dirge. <laughs> this uh, The framing of this particular section is quality Murphy Brown. It is you have this thing happening and there's always one principal character in the background just holding back feelings about it. And it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So now it's Frank's turn and Frank tries to connect with Henry. He says, oh, so it's Henry, right? Yes, sir. And Frank informs him, there's, there's no need to be so formal. We're not in the army. And he he quips that the only time an investigative reporter wears a tie is when they bury you. Loosen up. Henry says he can't loosen up his tie. He goes, sure, you can. Go for it. And he goes for it. And of course, sweet Henry is wearing a clip-on tie. I goes, we'll, we'll work on it. Miles tries to rally again. He goes, I'm excited. And I'm sure you're excited, too. I can tell just by looking at you. And he just stares at Henry's somber face. And he begins a pump up speech about how he's gonna give them all a tour. And the elevator dings. Just see a crowd of adults standing there. We hear a little, excuse me, getting off. Hey, Mr. Move it! Ugh. From behind a crowd of adults. And enter my Bialik Yay. in an orange skirt suit and brooch that only Murphy would buy.
1: I had a pin like that. I mean, the fact that they had these pins where like, it was one pin and then other stuff would dangle from yes, the pin. Yes,
0: loved them. I think I had one on my letter jacket just to really combine all of these people. And as she walks in, she goes, first, I get a bus driver who can't accept criticism. Now this, much like Mark Paul Gossler, we don't feel that we need to go into a massive bio on Mayim Bialik. She is a an originally a child actor, best known for Blossom, the role that made her famous, that I definitely was in love with, that I know meant a lot to Lauren, who will go into that in a moment. She also became very famous for, while Blossom was still airing. She had already gotten a deferred place at Harvard and was accepted by Yale, but ended up going to UCLA. She was awarded a bachelor's degree in 2000. And then she eventually completed her PhD in neuroscience in Mm -hmm. 2007. And that was like the Mayim Bialik kind of story for many years. uh, Was that like she was Blossom and then she became this genius- scientist and then she made a massive comeback in the big bang theory at, yeah actually also in 2007 and
1: i was looking at some interviews and some like backup stuff like, looking for some like you know to remind me of the history of her mm-hmm. and i asked her why she returned and she was like honestly
0: health insurance yep mm-hmm. i was like wow that's very telling um also i what it made me think of was i feel like as i was growing up there were multiple young intelligent actresses who did this yes and so i immediately started thinking about winnie yeah she's
1: a ma- i don't want to mathematician say ma- i was going to say that i wasn't sure if that was too crude to say mathematician if it was more like advanced word but yeah she's a math sure genius is, yeah
0: yeah and i remember growing up and being like yes and so i feel like they had a very strong impression on me as a kid being like you can be an artistic person and also be very smart yeah i agree and that was huge for me growing up but i definitely want to leave the floor open for one Lauren Milberger to talk about what Mayim Bialik means to her.
1: Yes, so um, growing up, and I have alluded to this before, there weren't a lot of Jewish women on television, let let alone particularly young Jewish girls. And when I say this, I want to be careful to say that I'm not saying that you have to look like a stereotypical Jewish person to be Jewish. Mm. It is a religion and it is an ethnicity. And whatever that works for you you don't have to be either or if you feel jewish or you practice judaism you are jewish Mm -hmm. because it is to me a culture as well as a religion i don't consider myself a very religious person actually but i was called ugly a lot the only sort of real sort of to me jewish woman that i looked up to was someone like bet midler but there was no one my age so watching Mm -hmm. blossom even though she was italian on the show And this is something I really didn't realize until I looked back as an adult, how important it was to me to see someone on television who looked like me. Mm -hmm. Something that we talk about all the time with people of color with less representation, you know. And it's so hard for me to sort of say, oh, well, there was another little white girl, you know, wow, I felt represented. But it just shows you that it's about seeing yourself. Like when I was really small, I realized I loved Snow White because I had pale skin and dark hair and I thought she looked like me. Like it's very important to sort of see yourself represented. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's sort of why I joked at the beginning that if I had seen this when it originally aired, I would have lost my mind. And so when Norm said that she was a recast, like a light bulb went off in my head because I have to say, something I probably wouldn't have brought up if we hadn't talked about the fact that she was recast mm-hmm. is that I always thought that it was very strange that everyone had a mini me except for Murphy. She was Murphy in attitude, but you didn't usually see a very Jewish looking girl cast as a younger version of Candice Bergen, sort of the, you know, white Shiksa goddess. Yep. And so it's interesting to me that it was because it was a last minute casting. And I'm, I bet you so much that the original girl looked just like Candice Bergen. But for some oh, reason, sure. she couldn't do, she couldn't play Murphy. She could look like Murphy, but inside, she couldn't do what Mayim could do. And even today, there aren't a lot of Jewish women on television. There are some Jewish characters that are not played by Jewish women. Mm-hmm. And also, her initials were MB, and like all my favorites were like Murphy and Bette Midler, and they all were like <laughs> MB. And like, my name's Lauren Beth Milberger, and I had like my initials, and I was like, we're all like all the same.
0: Oh, my God. It's like all about
1: you. It's all about me. And by the way, I did talk like this because I found a video of myself recording uh, my last day of middle school. And <laughs> I, I can hear myself behind the camera just being like,
0: oh, yeah, OK, um, I guess I'll do that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like oh, my God, <laughs> listen to me. You're adorable.
1: Uh, yes, I uh, I guess I was. But uh, I'll have to show you some pictures of my Mayim Bialik haircut. And listen, I didn't get it because of her. Like, we just all kind of had that haircut. I mean,
0: it's fine. I know she listens to the podcast, and she is so uncomfortable now.
1: Yeah. Um, but also, quickly, I should mention before we let go of talking about Mayim, before the pandemic, uh, Mayim had written a script that she was going to direct in which Candice Bergen was going to be in. Oh... Um, so, uh, yes, this is a uh, w- was probably my little fantasy that, you know, I related very much to to Mayim, and it gives me joy to see her literally in Murphy's clothes.
0: Yeah, I definitely related. Blossom was a really big deal for me as a a young, <laughs> opinionated intellectual child. Yes. Blossom was smart, uh, just like, you know, her. And there was a thing like this is this is something that, you know, watching a character like this and so on. And we've talked about this in the past is how much it meant. To us to see characters who would otherwise be labeled as bossy. Mm, yes. Which was only said as a negative thing for young girls. So we meet Natalie, and Miles goes over and kind of does another like infantilizing thing of, you know, hey there, hey there you are. Did you get lost? And Natalie goes, no, I didn't get lost. Rose Petal over there didn't hold the elevator for me.
1: And Murphy has now come to attention.
0: (laughs) Murphy like perks up like a meerkat is just like living for this moment and starts to, you know, make her way around. And Henry says, Natalie snuck into the studio. Now, remember, this is Henry, who's supposed to be Minnie Frank, the investigative reporter. And he says, Natalie snuck into the studio. You really shouldn't do that. You could get in trouble which you can see physically hurts Frank. Yeah, oh my God. It's so Frank just recoils him. and walks away.
1: Also, this actor, who, by the way, I was wondering why he was familiar. And when I looked it up, I was like, oh my God. People might remember him from Parker Lewis Can't Lose, mm-hmm. uh, the young version of Johnny and Johnny Dangerously, which is an amazing movie.
0: Oh. As Frank is reeling away, Murphy takes over the space and says, Miles, what did you say this one's name is? I mean, it it felt like she was shopping. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's so true. Yes. Right. She's like, "Ooh, I I haven't seen this model before. Like it it made me so happy. And Uh. and Natalie just turns to her and says, Natalie Moore, remember it. And this is the moment when Corky makes her way in and says that because of a certain person's selfishness, Corky will be pulling double duty and mentoring both of the girls. Natalie's response is it just gets worse. She says thanks she doesn't need it just give her an office and a decent secretary (laughs) murphy brown is swooning she is swooning over this child and murphy just goes uh miles you know i was thinking maybe i could find time in my schedule to work with natalie and then she turns to natalie and says but before we get started there's something you should understand to me working with kids is like chewing chalk so don't expect me to be nurturing or patient or bake cookies and Natalie just stares her right down right back and says, Murphy, are we gonna stand around yakking all day or are we going to put together a story? Yes. Oh, it is so good. And Murphy just says, you got potential kid, let's get to work. And they march into Murphy's office.
1: Cut to back in the bullpen, Corky and mini Corky get off
0: the elevator in pretty much matching blue outfits. It mm-hmm. is adorable. The audience can't take it. They're just so in love pretty much the rest of the outfits that we see you
1: know barring zach morris is like Mm -hmm. they just took all of their outfits and put them in a shrinker Mm -hmm. it's so well done uh I, it's At one point I was like, it's like when you make like a version of your own outfit for your dog. Not that I'm yes. saying they're dogs, but like just the mini version of you. It's, it's like, fine, they're so dogs. cute. It's fine. Uh, Corky is just reassuring Tracy that it's a compliment and that just means that they really like you and that she's been accepted. Apparently, someone called Sheldon Pincus and told him her parents were out of the house. Oh, my God. And they wanted him to come over and watch Blue Lagoon, which if no one knows has teenage nudity in it. oh yeah. does which is apparently very big in the 70s early 80s and uh and it's like gee i wonder who that could have been which of course murphy uh says because she knows exactly who it was (laughs) corky really just thinks that when they play pranks on us it really is a form of affection and you know what it really isn't (laughs) not from these two No, no 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 frank introduces henry dressed exactly like frank again shrinking All of Frank's outfits, from the pants to the belt to the shirt to the leather jacket. Oh, the jacket is so good. Jim and Zach Morris show up fighting over the fact that uh, Zach doesn't want to wear a suit. This is the thing. He's he's trying, I have to say. In this situation, Jim is the one who will not budge. Because the fact that he goes, he'll compromise and roll up the sleeves. Like, that's a very small compromise. He's still going to wear the suit. If he doesn't roll up the sleeves, he's going to look like a geek. Zach Morris asks why he can't just work with the Sherwood Chick, and the Sherwood Chick is the last straw for Mr. Jim Dial. And I wrote, this is so Gen X versus Boomer right now. My god, yes. (laughs) And then I wrote, the most amazing thing happens because Minnie Murphy comes off the elevator, Mayam Fialik. By the way, Maya means water in Hebrew, which is really beautiful. Walks off the elevator dressed just like Murphy in a little blue hat trench coat with a little pink box
0: of donuts my ovaries were bursting
1: oh my god by the way uh we were informed by corby that apparently um these pink boxes were an la thing that they didn't realize and so on a future show remind me i'm going to talk about the history of pink donut boxes in la Ooh. i know it's like oh this is so cool uh <laughs> I swear that it will sound cooler when I tell it. I was like, people are probably going, oh, God, Lauren, please I'm no. so excited
0: about it. And guess what? If it's just me listening, it's worth it.
1: OK. You confess for it. I'll put the timestamps. She is so happy about a story. She looks just like Murphy. She brought donuts for everybody. It's, I could probably put it side by side with a scene from the show, and it would totally match up. Mm-hmm. She, of course, confesses, because she thinks it's hilarious, that it was her who called uh, Sheldon uh, to go over to Tracy's house miles wants a meeting but of course you know jim says that they need to work and uh, zach complains about having to see more clips of walter klondike and jim looks like oh. he's going to explode
0: my i just have to walter cronkite my Lord will I ever make it through this lifetime. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And Murphy has some really great stuff for Natalie, and Natalie
1: is so excited. She just, I love that you can tell that they've obviously really bonded because they're so like similar and they're working on a story, and she couldn't wait all day to get out of school to come tell Murphy what she worked on. But Murphy, unfortunately, as they get into her office, has done all the work for Natalie, and it's so devastating. I so feel Natalie's pain, and you just see her shrivel. Mm-hmm. You know, like she just sort of becomes all of us when we were 13, which is like, okay, fine, like, whatever yeah. you say. She's given her a dossier, which is like every question to ask and every piece of information on uh, Edward Stoddard, the superintendent of schools, who she's going to be interviewing. And Murphy does not get it. The fun part is doing the work. But Murphy really sees it as she wants natalie to do a good job and it's hard to be on television and she just wants her to do well so natalie just kind of grabs her stuff and like sort of sulks off and and any human would go oh no let me run after her and 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 realize what i've done murphy does not get this at all and sort of shrugs it off like ah kids uh and doesn't even go after her and just goes back to her work
0: yeah The smile she has when it goes away, you're just like, oh. Yeah, it's
1: the smile. She she kind of calls after her, like, Natalie, like, then smiles and goes, oh, kids, like, doesn't even really get how upset she is
0: at all. You see so much this idea of like, this idea of like, she's a mini me, she gets it. Oh, that's true. Yeah. She has to go through it to get it. And she hasn't gone through it yet because she's a kid.
1: Yeah. It's the biggest example in the show of how Murphy doesn't get children.
0: Truly, more than anything else, it's just like, oh, yes. Truly, more than anything else, it's just like, oh. I was the kid in every room growing up because I was born later in my family's lives. And all I wanted was to be treated like a fellow adult. Yes. When they're on the set later, like the type of respect that that they're talking about giving them, like that's all I ever wanted. But the thing about it is like even when you're the kid in the room and you may be the most mature kid in the room... All I wanted was to be treated like a fellow adult. Yes. When they're on the set later, like the type of respect that that they're talking about giving them like that's all I ever wanted Uh, as a professional that the kid wants. This young woman hasn't experienced the lesson that makes you be able to be like, nope, we're just moving on. What matters is this? Like she hasn't gone through that yet. And that's a life experience thing, even more than a number. thing. Yeah. And Murphy's take literally taking that experience away from her. It's like, no, she's got to learn it. She has to get there. She's going to clearly get there. But you were able to get there.
1: And uh, we move on to...
0: Oh, it's show day, y'all. It is show day. We are on set, the FYI Junior set. And we, of course, start with Jim chasing Wes to the desk, begging him to put on a tie. To Wes's credit, he is in a suit with the sleeves rolled up at the cuff and crisp white sneakers. But he's in a suit. He even has a waistcoat. He's kind of ahead of his time,
1: like, because he is the non-tie kind of became acceptable in work. Exactly.
0: Kudos to, like, the pattern of that vest. He's, yeah, he's definitely ahead of his time. Jim just begs him, it's a thin little piece of cloth around your neck, would it kill you to wear it? And Wes just says, yes, it would. And Jim storms away which is fine, put me in my grave, see if I care. And just storms away to where all the adults are sitting behind uh, behind the, the equipment.
1: Can we talk about this set, please? Please, can we? So, when you look at this set, Jesse, what do you think of?
0: Man, there are a few things. The first thing I thought of was every Nickelodeon show I mm-hmm. watched, all of the toys I played with.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Okay.
0: Um, I was thinking about like GAC and those types of things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I do feel like you want me to say something in particular.
1: No, I'm just curious what your thoughts are before I talk about it.
0: I'm seeing like the big bubble lettering. Borderline neon colors.
1: Yes, it's like a orange neon in this sort of like mm-hmm. forest green, and lots of these sort of squiggles and like designs. Yes, and-
0: what I imagined, the opening of the of the show would be of like MTV style, like you see the doodle yeah, kind of alive, like a neon you sign. Say that that's what I assumed would happen.
1: Mm-hmm. So the reason I'm asking Jesse these questions is because this is actually known as the 80s aesthetic. Now, of course, this is 1989, is when I think of a lot of this sort of look and concept were attributed to a lot of kid stuff that we watched at the time, which makes sense because it's fun. It's comical, right? And what I remember it from is sitcoms, comedies, and children's type things. But I think also there's more. So so this was a design phenomenon known as the Memphis Group, or I should say it's from a group called the Memphis Group. It was started by, say his name correctly, Ettore Sostas in Milan, Italy, even though he was born in Austria. The kernel of it started in about 1977, but it officially started in 1980 as a furniture design, even though he and the Memphis Group was stationed in Milan, it had people from all around the world, from Japan, France, Britain. It was really international. And in fact, Peter Shire, who was one of the Americans, really helped bring sort of this group and look to popularity, right? The reason it's called the Memphis Group because it's named after a Bob Dylan song called Stuck Inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues Again from Blonde on Blonde in 1966. And it was started in sort of a very, sounds like very Italian. People from the firm were just hanging around at someone's Italian uh, apartment, listening to Bob Dylan, looking at all of their amazing designs they made, and like, let's do a thing. <laughs> <laughs> like they do. Exactly. So this feels like a lot of stuff that I feel like Eldon would have really found fascinating. I don't know if he would have liked it per se, but a lot Mm -hmm. of the research I did was very much like, oh, this is stuff that I feel like I'd love to hear Eldon's take
0: on it. Yeah, Eldon would have had a full thesis statement on this.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because the Memphis was considered a reaction against the status quo. It was supposed to be comical. It was supposed to be funny and outrageous and sort of a reaction to the minimalism and the modernism before it with the structures and their straight lines. Whereas this is bold colors. It's of different sort of designs. Someone described it as Bauhaus uh, meets Fisher-Price. <laughs> Uh, and obviously, it, you know, oh, and it has a lot of geometric figures. Um, I'm going to put a lot of pictures. I know it's hard to describe it. You know, I'm going to put a lot on social media and on our show notes. You guys can look at pictures alongside of it. But it's a it's sort of bold color palette. In fact, as much as it has influence in Art Deco and pop art like Andy Warhol and sort of like 1950s kitsch, uh, original designer, who by the way, Sostos was in his 60s when he sort of invented this sort of idea. And everyone around him were in the 20s, which is sort of amazing. But um, when he was younger, he'd visited uh, India. And he loved sort of all the bright colors that, you know, no matter how much money you had, you would wear. And whether your clothing or on materials or on objects, he loved that. So laminates, not actually very expensive materials. Um, the lines that we sort of mm-hmm. see on the set are called ziglets. And the idea was things that didn't sort of go together the memphis group debuted in 1981 at a renowned furniture fair and this is what i found so interesting that i think connects to sort of like the whole sitcom idea that we think of this this look or like children's idea is that they purposely named all of their objects after luxury hotels so there was like the plaza vanity or like eventually the soho chair Mm -hmm. but it was meant to be sort of a joke because it was faux chic it was very inexpensive materials like formica I couldn't believe he was like, oh, yeah, half of this is made of Formica.
0: Yeah, it was the idea of like they're being named after places that would never have them.
1: Things that really couldn't be mass produced that well. In fact, there's only one piece of furniture that was mass produced, which amazingly was uh, designed by one of the few women in the Memphis group. It's called hmm. The First Chair. It's by Michelle Luce. I hope I say her name right. In 1983, David Bowie became a huge collector. So the joke was, is that it was inexpensive materials covering in these sort of loud, broad. And it made me think that it feels so much like the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. Big, loud, big, bold, crazy things that don't go together. Presentation, disguising. (laughs) I'm not sure how I can phrase this, but uh, not showing what is really underneath. Now, that's me. Mm -hmm. That's just that's not the art world. That was me reading all this going, huh? And in 1984, the Bel Air chair by Peter Sher, who I uh, mentioned, who was one of the American people involved in the group, was featured in a photo shoot in Playboy. And then it just sort of took off. And by 1986, it was featured in the set of Pee Wee's Playhouse also the film ruthless people with bet midler at the beginning of the movie she has this like really like overdone apartment which is supposed to show her extravagance and also her bad taste which many people have said that this was like bad taste on purpose
0: yeah so first of all i just looked up the first chair yeah And i'm fascinated that that's the one that got mass produced yes. um I just say I'm just gonna say look it up because it's not what I was expecting, even knowing this particular style. Yeah. But I do find it interesting that it's considered quintessentially 80s because to me, this particular treatment of it feels quintessentially 90s. Same. But what I would say is because for me, a lot of the nineties, except for when I was watching things like Murphy Brown and West Wing and so on with my parents, a lot of stuff that I saw that was made for me in kids' entertainment. Was this, which would make sense if it was, you know, this idea of the clashing loud uh, aesthetic was coming to be, you know, ironically, in the 80s for all of the adults, that then it was actually funneled into an intentional art form for the kids, the next generation. And Mm -hmm. you also
1: kind of see this as how grunge becomes maybe a reaction to this, right? Because it's all Mm -hmm. muted tones. and, And that's why I was honestly surprised, because when I see this look exactly, I think of the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I do think a lot of it sort of came over. But this particular group itself disbanded in 1987. Eventually, what we know is Saved by the Bell would come out. And the Max is also Memphis group designed, as is the last couple of years of the Facts of Life. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and I'm also going to say, like, when it started, it wasn't the same as when it starts being an intentional design by, like, a mass market thing, like a TV show. So, like, when they did it, they were mixing up what the norm was by the time it became well noted they were already the original creators were already on their way out Mm -hmm. but now it had become an aesthetic that was recognizable that was being used in these kind of mass marketplaces like tv shows and so on yeah so it does make sense that like once it became big then they disbanded (laughs)
1: This design also makes me think of Explanation Perfume, the Electric Youth perfume bottles. Uh, And then I think a lot of people will also know it as the complete design of the 80s Cafe and Back to the Future 2. Exactly, that's what I was just thinking about. Now, one last thing I just wanna say that also is gonna sort of tie up a lot of things that we're talking about. Obviously, I Want My FYI is a take on I Want My MTV. According to Glenn Adamson, who is with the Yale Center of British Art, he's a senior scholar in the UK, although he is an American, He feels that the reason this sort of look was a hit is actually simultaneously in 1981 directly with the rise of MTV. And if you look at the logo of MTV with the the changing colors and the, the juxtaposition of designs, that that feels very Memphis as well. And you see a lot of that in music videos and things like that. So when you were saying that this reminds you of the MTV logo, it was really interesting.
0: Miles calls and it is showtime and he's sitting in his little director chair and clearly melting down going, how do they look? Maybe the schedule is too rough. Maybe I pushed them too much. And Murphy says something that I actually, as I said earlier, as a kid in every room growing up, appreciate, which is, oh, there you go, coddling them again. If those kids want to be journalists, they're going to have to learn to be tough, which honestly is how I would have wanted to be treated. Same. And then Miles' response is, I should have gone with the Batman wallpaper.
1: No, no, Miles, no. Miles,
0: did you learn nothing about the Memphis school? Uh, so Murphy goes to give Natalie a pep talk. And this is something that I do appreciate about Murphy and her interaction with children, as we've seen, is like the positive end of said spectrum is yes. that she goes in to talk to this kid the way they want to be spoken to, which is like, hey, I'm going to talk to you as a fellow professional. How you doing? Yeah. And so she walks up. She says, so this is it. The big moment. How do you feel? Natalie, much like what we saw in the last segment, has pretty much wilted into herself. She looks very insecure. She looks very uh, like downcast, nervous. Yeah. Can I, I just need to
1: ask that, like, of all the outfits they replicated, Ugh. this one is
0: dead on.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like literally her outfit, I think, from And So He Goes.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so good. So good. And she, oh, she's so cute. She's so and cute. Natalie says she feels OK, I guess. And I wrote that at this moment, I knew what was coming. And it wasn't from memory, but it was from the conditioning with the great writing the show had given me. There were one of two ways this could go based on how the show has been written. And I don't mean that as like they've become predictable. I mean that as in like they have taught me to expect good twists and good writing. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, it's either going to be humorous, either it's going to turn into an expose on Murphy Brown and the way she is in her workplace. It's going to be what happens, which is we have a really tender moment in which Murphy realizes and gives this girl what she needs. And based on the way this episode had been written, I was like, this is the tender moment. This is going to be the thing Mm -hmm. that we need. Yeah. And I just love this show for one, me- making me be like, it could go one of two ways. And two, having the bravery to not always pick the joke.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what we love about this show. It's
0: not just sort of a straight comedy. Yeah. Like they could have just been like, well, she is a Minnie Murphy, so she's going to screw her to the wall. Like, no, instead, they actually give Murphy a moment. Murphy wishes her good luck and then offers her, you know, three new questions she could consider. And Mayam's little delivery of just, oh, sure is so painful to watch. I know. It hurts, and you see it affects Murphy. Yeah. She starts to head back, and then she says says that she knows that Natalie wanted to do the interview her way, but this isn't the school play. There's no room for mistakes. (sighs) Oh, Murphy. Oh, it hurt me. And you just see Natalie go say that she knows she's right. And this is when you see Murphy starting to realize. And as she's walking away, Natalie asks her, Hey, when you did this for the first time, was it fun? Oh. And Murphy, and I'm just like, oh, and Murphy just says, are you kidding? It was the greatest moment of my life. Oh, And Natalie makes her way back and she's like, oh, I just wanted to know. And I wrote, <sighs> she is so sad and nervous and it kills me. This is one of those great moments where, like, absolutely Candace Bergen could have just sold this moment of realization on her own. But what the gift of having a fellow actor in Maya Bialik, in this, like, young, mature actor, be able to give her something to work off of. We could have sold the moment, absolutely. But it's such a resounding success for the two of them as scene partners. And so Murphy just says, Natalie, give me those cards. And now very confused. She says, those are my notes and my questions, except it's not my interview. Okay, you want to learn? You're now flying without a net. You're going to do this your way. And do you want to know something? You're going to have the time of your life. Oh, yay. Natalie's smile is literally everything in my life. It is so, she's so excited. And that's how you know she's a Minnie Murphy because she's not like, (gasps) like she is so excited. Yeah. Because she knows what she's doing. She's done her research.
1: Exactly. And I think the nervousness before is that nervousness you have when you're not prepared because it's not her stuff.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And she doesn't trust that what she knows is enough. Yeah. And this moment of being like, you have everything you need. And that's just like what every kid needs.
1: During this week with Murphy, she's learned to look up to Murphy and to have Mm -hmm. Murphy think she's not good enough must really hurt. Yes.
0: Also, I'm going to call myself out on the fact that at the beginning of this episode, I was like, they're not kids, they're teens. And I've called them kids the entire rest of the time. (laughs) So I'm a hypocrite. (laughs) Uh, So shame on you. The music starts up, the countdown begins for the beginning of the show. And at that moment, sweet Mark Paul Gossler stands up, suddenly very nervous, goes, Hey, Jim, can I borrow your tie, man? This is what Mark Paul Gossler does great that makes Zach lovable, even though he kind of sucks. He is so innocently scared. He's immediately nervous, and it's so sweet and it makes you love him. Wonderful Jim just springs into action, my savior. He, like, starts, you know, pulling, loosening and pulling the tie over his own head to place it around Wes. The collar's already popped to receive it. And what I love is he does this really sweet thing right before he runs away where he kind of touches Wes's, like, back of his head and his shoulder, just, like, sweetly checking on him before he runs off camera. Aww. It's so sweet. And you can just see they're all so proud of their little mini-me's. So they do the opening, They're make- Corky has to remind Tracy to smile. <laughs> and we cut over to Natalie Moore, who is with Dr. Stoddard, the superintendent. And much like she is living in this suit, the way she should, she her voice and her carriage with her like cross legs and everything is so mature. And anyone with a brain knows that this guy is in trouble. Except for this guy. This man clearly does not have a brain and he is clearly talking down to them uh, as he's being introduced. You know, he wishes them good luck and throws a thumbs up and a wink to the desk. And this man clearly well done to this man because I hate him immediately. Now, he says, thank you, Dr. Stoddard. Now, while other school districts rely on tax dollars for funding, you began a successful program reaching out to the private sector for financial support. And Dr. Stoddard says, you know, Natalie, the business of education is the business of all our tomorrows. And then does this really gross smile. They're counting on their on bright boys and girls like you to be the leaders of the future. And Natalie does this amazing kind of. She's starting to smile like you can see the wolf in her being like, yes. And she looks to Murphy with the beginnings of the smile. Murphy nods and then she breaks into full smile and leans forward in a very Murphy moment. How much money did you raise last year? So Dr. Stoddard laughs and says, I'm sure you're not interested in hearing a bunch of boring figures. Natalie says, oh, yes, I am. You raised $2 million, didn't you, Dr. Stoddard? Yet only a million and a half reached the schools. Where's the other half million? Yeah. The way she just, one, mimics his laugh halfway through and then just rolls into the where's the other half million is seamless. And he suddenly looks terrified. He's like, well, uh, well, I'm glad you asked it. It's being held in an escrow account. Escrow is a very complicated and he clearly is about to try and talk down to her. And she interrupts him to inform him, oh, yes, an escrow account called Sidbar Enterprises, an account that was used to secure a home improvement loan for 555 Long Creek Road. That's your address, isn't it, Dr. Stoddard? (laughs) It's so good. And he is, like, again, a series of uncomfortable laughs. Mm -hmm. And Natalie... Trails into, I have copies of receipts for an automatic garage door opener, backyard patio, 3,000 square feet of new sod. And as she's trailing off into this and we're exiting the scene, we cut to Murphy and Frank celebrating and Murphy wipes a tear away.
1: Oh, it's so good. I'm so proud of her. We cut to them watching the episode of Murphy's Townhouse. I assume this is uh, Saturday night after it's aired. They've apparently watched it like three times already. Natalie is still again dressed like Minnie Murphy, only it's uh, at home Murphy. She's casual Murphy. She's like my day-to-night Barbie. Mm-hmm. So Eldon arrives with Fig Newtons, and his new new way of wooing Corky is to pretend he doesn't really see her. And he, oh, God, I didn't see you there. It's such a great piece of comic acting because he's bad at it but also obviously Bobby is being bad on purpose and I love it so much and Corky Mm -hmm. uh kind of is uh noticing the fact and she brings it up to Eldon that usually he makes like a fuss over her and he hasn't really talked to her and and she really seems to be a little offended and she she has to pretend that she's okay with it because he says that he's he's come to the conclusion that she doesn't like him, and, and he has to respect that pretty much. Only it's not true. He is, of course, pretending advice he got
0: from Hank. Oh, Hank. I think Hank got that advice from Frank. But anyway. Uh-huh. I love, I just love the creature that is now Hank.
1: Yes, he's he's Frank.
0: <laughs> Frank Hank!
1: <laughs> I believe we just got that. Mm. Uh, so Miles arrives, and he looks super sad. He's talking to Murphy privately. He's been talking to the brass, and FYI, I for kids is history. The network hated it. It was too hard hitting. An adult for Saturday morning. Uh, I think Jesse and I both completely disagree. Uh huh. And they were going to replace it with a game show hosted by Lou Ferrigno, who, if no one remembers, was <laughs> the Hulk version of the of the Hulk.
0: The TV version. The,
1: the TV Hulk. version, yes. Murphy is. Devastated. She has this huge speech about how she's had it with the industry, uh, a phrase she uses a lot. She's Mm -hmm. quitting and she's moving to a farm and giving it all up. Miles says that Murphy needs to just put herself together because they have to tell the kids. And it's a great shot that we don't usually get where you can see the kids in the background, all happy and excited. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, Murphy
0: becomes pretty like a sap and she doesn't want to, she doesn't know she has it in her to tell the kids. Okay, I would also like to argue it is not Murphy's job to tell them. Well, yes, that's true. It's Miles's job to tell them. Miles should tell them doing his actual job, and Murphy should be the one demonstrating how you take it. Like, that's how she helps the kids in the scenario and being a professional. The idea that all of a sudden Murphy speaks for them, Miles is the one in charge. He is the one who tells that news. That makes me so angry.
1: See, I feel like it was more that Murphy wanted to be the one
0: to tell it. I don't like that. Okay, I, I fair. No I am, fair. I see. Regardless of totally if that's the it. intention, that is wrong. It is Miles's job. Miles should be the one. I'm so angry with Miles that he let that happen.
1: Okay, I'm. I'm. I, again, fair. It's
0: not <laughs> fair, and it makes me angry. Her job is to demonstrate how a reporter accepts the bad news.
1: Well, that is interesting. You say that. So Murphy goes into about how she just knows how successful everyone's going to be. Definitely a kiss of death. And Natalie, <laughs> being the smartest one in the room, gets it before Murphy can completely finish. And goes, ah, oh, we got the axe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Corky completely freaks out. And, uh, and has to be consoled by her mini-me. Mm-hmm. Frank complains they had a horrible lead-in. And then Hank consoles Frank. And then Zach Morris thinks he should have worn a suit. And, and Jim thinks that, you know, it wouldn't have mattered that all they want is people who are going to shake their bottom. That's all they want. <laughs> love him. And Murphy offers to take the kids to a movie and ice cream. Bless and then uh, She's so upset she offers Natalie a puppy. <laughs> but the kids are fine with it. They are resilient children
0: kids actually understand disappointment they've actually gone through it before
1: yeah and it's like not their whole life
0: mm-hmm.
1: like tracy says that she now has time to be a cheerleader which is her true passion yeah her true passion uh hank offers that they all go to the mall and uh, little corky uh has to console big corky uh whose parting words are in tears which is one of my favorite <laughs> line readings by faith ford <laughs> else are on sale at Casual Corner. It's so, <laughs> so cute. Good. And Murphy wants to know if Natalie wants to talk. Uh, you know, the kids kind of all leave. And it's really sort of, you know, Murphy and, Nat- and, and Natalie. Natalie, I can tell, is not a person who wants to go to the mall. Yeah. And she thinks that she didn't work hard enough, you know, and she wasn't good enough. And. <laughs> And Murphy will not stand for this. But, of course, Murphy, you're the one that made her think that. Murphy. And she has to understand that, you know, it, she can't put that kind of pressure on herself. And the next thing, you know, if, you, if she put that kind of pressure on herself, the next thing she knew, she would be, and she realized, in rehab at Betty Ford. And so she kind of gets it, that, like, it starts young. And, and I have to say, this is not where I thought this episode was going to go. And yeah. I, I wish they had explored it more, but I really like it. That Mm -hmm. it's Murphy learning a lesson as well
0: as not just about kids, but about herself. Yeah, it's a super brave moment. They did not have to go there.
1: Yeah, and you get the impression that Murphy didn't give herself the time to be a kid. And so she Mm -hmm. encourages Natalie to be a kid because Natalie's not being a kid. She's being an adult. She's the only one above these teens who was being an adult. But she really needs to learn to be a kid. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, she's already a good reporter. It's really very sweet. Oh, oh, I forgot about this, is Murphy goes into this really amazing monologue that I, now being her age, do relate to, where she relays a a trauma from her childhood about not being invited to a sleigh ride.
0: Feeling you, girl.
1: Yes. But pretty much she assures um, Natalie that this business is long and that she needs to get a tougher skin. And as she's saying that, all of the FYI people just sulk out of the house. (laughs) As if uh to confirm that that actually does not happen. Uh you do not get no. a tougher skin sometimes when you get older, but you should. And so what is one of the best parts of the episode is Murphy and Natalie decide that they're gonna stay in and play Barbara Walters special. <laughs> but Murphy wants to be Cher, but then Natalie is like, Well, then if you're Cher, I'll be Madonna. And then Murphy goes, Well, who's gonna be Barbara Walters? Well, if we have Cher and Madonna. Who needs Barbara Walters? <laughs> And before we end, I just have to say again how this episode just gets me. I have a video recording of me playing Barbara Walter special. Mm-hmm. But as Barbara Wawa.
0: Yes, Barbara Wawa.
1: And taking a tour of my own house with my friend playing Kirstie Alley.
0: Bless it. Yeah.
1: So I've done this. And so this episode is extremely personal to me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're done. And uh, goodbye, FYIers. I could watch a whole show with children of oh, FYI.
0: I really could. My dream. I want to see how,
1: how Natalie, like, got all this
0: insider information
1: by playing a naive kid.
0: Yeah. This was super fun. It's so fun to discover some of these. I forgot so much of this episode, and it makes me very, very happy to be there. Um, so please follow us and interact with us. You can find us on social media at Murphy Brown Pod. You can find our website, MurphyBrownPod.com. You can email us, MurphyBrownPod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. For another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast.